uh, it was great yesterday. I enjoyed uh, yesterday morning. Um, having been on paternity leave for, for like six weeks, um, coming back and preaching twice, back to back, I was toast by the end of it and laid down and slept for about two hours yesterday afternoon. Uh, so by the grace of God and Kevin's wonderful supply of um, something laced coffee, um, I'm looking forward to, to speaking again. Uh, you know, it's, it's amazing because uh, I had some ideas and thoughts. Joe and I had chatted about perhaps how this whole weekend would roll in terms of content and things. And um, just yesterday, uh, chatting to people, chatting to Gary and Bob, and um, just felt that some of the prophetic things that, that came out and, and the direction that, that the Spirit was leading us in, I thought, okay, well, let's just shift things slightly. Uh, so what I want to do this morning is I'm going to focus in on one verse of Colossians in this first session. Just one verse, but there's a whole ton of freight with this verse. Uh, we're going to unpack it and look at it. Um, before we do that, we're going to read the, the setting that it's found in. If you have a Bible, please turn to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to read from verses 15 to 20, and uh, the words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me. So if maybe you wouldn't think of yourself as a Christian, you haven't got a Bible, you're thinking, oh great, now I feel like a loser because everyone's got a Bible and not me, then uh, it will come up behind you. Uh, if you're young and single and sitting next to somebody hot, now's your chance. Hey, baby, nice Bible. You know what I mean? It started reading the Bible over somebody's shoulder. Um, you never know, strange things have happened. So, we all there? Everyone there? We've got it up behind us? Wonderful. Now, come on, concentrate, please. This is. He says, yeah, I know. That's right. Why, why are you moving? <laughs> oh, you tried that one before, I see. Crash and burn. So, Colossians 1, we're going to read verses 15 to 20, all right? This is the ESV version. Um, by the way, I, I like the ESV version. I don't know what you use here. Um, ESV is cool. In that kind of scope of Bible translations, you've got like the super literal translations like King James and NASB that are word for word, literally, but are a little bit clunky to read out. Then you've got Good News, NIV, in the, in the sort of... Dynamic equivalent is what it's called. It kind of takes a Greek word and makes a phrase out of it. Then you've got the message from the street Bible over here. And then the ESV, not kind of Melanie McCullough's the mass. ESV is kind of cool because you get the readability, but you also get the, the great translation. It's very accurate with the Greek, so I highly recommend it. And I am not on commission at all um, from Crossway or any other major publisher. Let's read it, shall we? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the first one dead, in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Man, there's a statement. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, Colossians was written by uh, a Christian leader called Paul, uh, who was uh, being a Jewish Pharisee, had had a dramatic experience of the risen Jesus that had basically transformed his whole life. Uh, it changed his worldview. He understood in this moment of revelation that 
the Jesus that he'd been persecuting, the Christians he'd been persecuting, and particularly Jesus were, that Jesus actually was the Jewish Messiah. He was the one who he was looking for and hoping for, and it transformed his life, and he becomes a preacher and an apostle, which means a sense one, his sense of the claim that Jesus is risen, that God has acted climactically in this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who has been proclaimed son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He's the Messiah. He's the one. He's the one who fulfills the hopes of Israel and is blessing the nations. Now, Paul's writing to this, this church in Colossae, a town called Colossae. It's in what would be Turkey, I think, today. Um, and it's kind of, there's not a lot that's known about Colossae because it apparently got flattened by an earthquake. And so there's not been much excavation. They haven't found anything. It's not like Ephesus where you can go and look at the ruins and discover a little bit about the culture uh, or kind of get ideas about the culture at the time. So Paul's writing to this this little newbie bunch of Christians in a church in a little town called Colossae that live under the shadow of the Roman Empire. So the, the dominant power and force of the world at that time is Rome. And Rome rules supreme. And there's all kinds of statements like Caesar is Lord. And there was something called the Pax Romana that proclaimed that since Caesar is enthroned and since the Roman Empire has conquered over the barbarian hordes, uh, there's this Pax, there's this peace that means that the goodness and the well-being of the empire has come through military victory. And there was something called the Euangelion, which is the gospel, which is the announcement that Caesar has ascended to the throne and therefore there's peace and there's prosperity throughout the world. And recognize any of those words? Peace, gospel, lordship, Caesar's called the son of God. So Paul is doing this amazing thing in Colossians. He's writing to a bunch of people who have new Christians, relatively new Christians, who are living in a, in a context where all these statements about Caesar are all around in the context that they live in. And he says, no, let me tell you about another Lord, let me tell you about a better peace. Let me tell you about a true euangelion, announcement, gospel. Let me tell you about one who is truly blessing the nations. Jesus, he is the son of God. He is the truth of which Caesar is nothing but a cheap parody. So what he's doing is he's writing to this newbie bunch of Christians to strengthen them and root them and establish them in their faith and to establish them in this understanding that Jesus Christ is central, that the whole earth is under the sovereign rule of King Jesus now, and Caesar will be judged in the end, and all Caesar's power is borrowed anyway and is given by King Jesus. And if he uses it foolishly, Jesus will hold him accountable for that in the end one day. And so what he's doing is attempting to ground them and root them and to root this community in Christ, to root them in the truth, to root them in the gospel, to root them in a a reimagined way of seeing life and the world in which they live, okay? There's all this stuff is going on in Colossians. Now, the passage that we've read is actually a poem. Would you believe? You wouldn't probably have got that from reading the English translation, but in the Greek, it comes out a lot more as a poem. And I love the fact that this guy, Paul, this leader, this preacher, this apostle, is more than just a theological boffin who stands and bombards people with fact and fact and fact and proposition and truth and this and just kind of cram your head full of stuff and it'll all be all right. He's more than just some kind of quiffed, white-suited, word-of-faith preacher who kind of says, just believe and it'll all be fine, it'll work out. What he's doing is something far more profound. By taking this poem, and and some scholars say that it was a pre-existing form, actually. There was this pre-existing poem that Paul's taken and stuffed full of Jesus content, like he's kind of pimped the hymn or something, you know. Uh, he's, He's taken this 
form, filled it with Christ. And why is he doing that? Why, why use a poem? Why not just tell them some things, some facts? Well, because facts, I don't know about you, but they can hit your head and bounce off. They can just kind of boink. Oh, I heard stuff. But unless, you, you know, unless you're used to really engaging with certain things, you, you might not remember. But what, what does he do? He puts it in a, a creative, poetic form in order to captivate the church's imagination. Because there's something about creativity. There's something about form that gets into the heart, that gets into the thinking, that infiltrates deeper than just mere facts and stuff bombarded at your head may do. He's looking to ground them in something to get them to think and reimagine and consider who this Jesus is. Now think about it. Last night, I bet you all went home kind of going, uh, what's that kind of... Right? You all went home singing that. I woke up this morning singing it. It's like, dang. (laughs) Thanks, God. That's great. (laughs) See, it gets into your... See, you remember it, don't you? It gets in. Right? You sing songs that... I think it was... um, Who was the... uh, I think it was Graham Kendrick said that the majority of Christians get their theology from what they sing, not from what they read. Right? Why is that? Because, well, it's kind of wrapped in this form, this thing that you sing, and it gets into your imagination. Right? It infiltrates to a deeper level, which, worship leaders, songwriters, is why you must be very careful about the content. Where's John? That you, that you, there, that you, that you have when you sing songs. Because we're not just about having a whoopee time, you know, some fluffy bunnies, nice Christian stuff. We're looking at getting people's imaginations reshaped so that they think and live different in the world in which we live in. This isn't some kind of bizarre escapism. This is about coming together and reimagining the world under the Lordship of Jesus and then going out into the world next week and doing it, living in an alternative reality right under the nose of whatever powers might be in our world, not Rome anymore, where you take the things and they get in your imagination you do different stuff that subverts the way that the powers and authorities and dominions or thrones, whatever they are, be it consumerism or capitalism, whatever, you undermine them, subvert them by living a very different kind of life in submission to King Jesus, right? This is what Paul is doing in Colossians. Not just fact, 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 imagination, heart, getting their thinking and their, their juices flowing. Whoa, this is wow, okay? Now, I'll give you a slightly more, only slightly more modern, but it's not even really modern, slightly more recent version of this. Martin Luther, the great reformer. Have you heard of Martin Luther? Yeah. Oh, oh, yes, we're reformed. Thank you very much. You know Martin Luther. <laughs> Martin Luther, it was said by the, uh, the Catholic cardinals at the time that he did more damage by his songs than he did by his preaching. Because what Martin Luther did was he, he took his, I don't know, whatever they had, banjos, <laughs> and uh, chicken picking away on his banjo. He, he, he took his instruments and he, he wrote songs that were uh, the content of the preaching of the Reformation and put them into song. And he traveled, he was a great musician apparently, and he went into taverns in Germany and he sang and he played. And those songs got picked up by other musicians and other bards who then traveled around. And so the message of the Reformation got around culture through a creative expression, songs. Because Martin Luther took a creative cultural form, stuffed it full of Christ, and people got it in a whole new way. More up to date, still 50 or 60, maybe 100 years ago, uh, the Salvation Army, they used to do this very kind of thing. They used it evangelistically. They would take 
the drinking songs of the time. So, and they would kind of, they had their brass bands, right? I don't know whether you get this kind of thing in, the, in the Canada or not. It's maybe a slightly unique uh, UK thing, brass bands. Um, and they would go and they would take the drinking songs and they'd fill them full of Jesus. So they would have songs like uh, in, the, in the bars that went, here's, here's the good old whiskey, mop it down, mop it down. And they would turn it into storm, storm the thoughts of Satan, bring them down, bring them down. <laughs> And so they would rock up outside a tavern with their brass bands and, and play these, these familiar tunes, only stuffed full of Jesus content. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people were born again by coming out hearing these amazing bands, because they were amazing. And that was the cultural expression of the time, how good music was good. The northeast, the northwest of England, brass bands, they come out, ooh, they're good. And, you know, maybe they thought, why are they wearing uniforms? This is bizarre. But then they would hear these songs and would be cut to the quick, convicted, changed, transformed. You know, there's this amazing thing, taking a cultural form, filling it full of Christ, and bringing something of God's presence and kingdom into the world. This is kind of what Paul's doing. That's what I want to suggest he's doing. And so imagination is really, really important for a Christian. Imagination, when you're you're living in a world that is... So you're surrounded by all kinds of symbols and words and announcements and statements and false gospels and, uh, and proclamations that seem to suggest that it is not actually Jesus who is enthroned and living as the Lord of this world. You need something to fill your imagination and your heart to the degree that it empowers and informs a new way of living that is subversive to that reality. But you don't do it away from the world. You do it in the very sight of the world. In order that the world goes, oh, and sits up and takes notice. What is this? Oh, this is a bit different. This is like what we, what we have, kind of how we think that it's coming at us in a, from a different angle. What, what, are you, what are you talking about here? You see what I mean? It opens up things. It opens up people's hearts and lives in whole new ways. Now, I've gone a little bit off piste, so I have to come back. Back to Colossae, first century, about 62 AD probably, surrounded by images of Roman power and authority, surrounded by things that proclaim Caesar is Lord. What do you do? What do you do as a new believer in Jesus, as a, probably a bit of a fearful believer in Jesus? What, what do you do when you have this faith suddenly that proclaims another Lord, not Caesar? How do you live faithfully to that Lord when all around you, it looks as though it is Caesar 1, Jesus 0. How, how do you live? What do you do? I wonder how you live as a Christian in Fredericton in 2012, when everything around you seems to suggest that it is consumerism 1, Jesus 0. Promiscuity 1, Jesus 0. Oppression and injustice 1, Jesus 0. Greed won, Jesus nil. Divorce won, Jesus nil. Unemployment won, uh, Jesus nil. Uh, Economic crisis won, Jesus nil. Loneliness won, Jesus nil. What do you do? How do you handle that? How do you walk it out? How do you work it through? Well, Paul knows, and this is what we want to get to today, that understanding in a deep way that grips your imagination 
and causes you to think and to live differently is key and is very, very important. We don't do triumphalism. Hey, it's all okay, it's fine, da 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 Pretend that nothing is wrong, everything's cool. We come into our church meeting, we sing loud, brash, proclamative songs about Jesus, and we pretend that everything's okay. Neither do we do fatalism, where we're kind of miserable and in the pits, and, oh, it's all so bad, it's hard here. <laughs> That's the classic Christian thing. How's it going there? Well, it's really difficult in England. It's difficult everywhere. <laughs> it's the reality. We've got to find a way that is neither triumphalism nor fatalism, but that is imaginative, faithful, subversive living in a context which we find ourselves. Okay? We're going to look at one particular verse. And uh, it's verse 16. We're going to drill into this one verse and unpack it a little bit and look at some other scriptures and find some ways of being empowered and equipped to live imaginative Christian faithful living in 2012 in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and, and in the UK. I'm preaching to myself too. Because this kind of poetry, this kind of subversive stuff summons us to, to imagine and do realities differently right under the noses of the world, not away from them. Okay? Got to understand that. It's not about how we live away from the world. It's about how we live in the world, in God's world. Last time I checked, this is still God's good world that he says is good and is acting to redeem and renew. Okay? When we live faithfully, subversively as a church in the world, we act as a foretaste of what is to come. We live as a glimpse of how things are going to be, of how things should be, and actually how things ultimately are now. And actually, as the church lives faithfully and imaginatively like that, it, it acts in kind of judgment in a way. It, it judges the, the, the authorities and powers and dominions that are in rebellion against King Jesus right now. And so it's important that what we do and how we live is in view of the world in which we live. Okay, right. We're going to look at the centrality of Jesus. So verse 16, I think, yeah, here it is. Great, thanks, John. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You know, this says that Jesus is central to everything. And I want to just mention something that is, sounds good, but actually maybe is not so good. It's very popular to say it's really important that you have Jesus first in your life. Make sure Jesus is first, it's God first in everything. We've got to make sure it's God first, and that sounds great. But if it's God first, and you need a photo finish to separate first God and second pornography, then well, God first doesn't quite sound so good anymore, does it? When you, when you need an independent adjudicator to decide whether first place is Jesus or second place is adultery, not so good anymore, right? Or first place is Jesus, second place and third place might be greed and materialism. Hang on a minute. So Jesus is first, but right on, right on his heels are all these other kinds of things. And so we can talk about Jesus first, we could say we're living Jesus first, but actually what we're really saying is it's Jesus first as a kind of smokescreen to help us to carry on living in a kind of way that we want to live maybe. When you have Jesus central, when he is the center of everything, it means that all that you do splows out of that center, and you won't have to have a photo finish. 
between Jesus and porn or whatever else it might be. Because all that you do comes out of this center. Now, okay, am I saying that we're going for sinful, sinless perfection? No, no, no. But what I'm saying is, it is it's easy to save Jesus first and to have a bunch of things coming up behind. When you put Jesus at the center of your life, everything else that you do flows out of that. And so it changes the way that you think and you act and you live, all right? So Paul's about the church getting Jesus central. And so he says these three things. There's, there's three things he says about Jesus and creation. And this is huge. Now, I'm not going to bore you to tears with the minutiae of the Greek, um, which wouldn't be very good for any of us, would it? Um, but there's, there's this phrase, tapanta, in the Greek. It means, all, it's translated all things. It actually means the, the totality Everything, the totality, tapanta. And uh, Paul uses it in three connections. I think we have it up here, actually. Uh, in him, through him, and to him, right? He says, in him, all things were created. I don't know, actually, with some of the Bible translations, they don't quite pick this up. In him, all things were created. So this is past tense. In him, tapanta, the totality, was created. What Paul is saying is that Jesus, the, the man Jesus, is now recognized as the one who in the beginning all things were created through. Jesus is the agent of the Father's creation. He's not the sole creator. He's the means through which the Father created all things. It was all made through him. Now, there's this interesting wisdom tradition in Judaism that if you read Proverbs, there's passages like in Proverbs 8 that talk about wisdom as being this kind of personified, uh, a person who was there in the beginning with God. And Paul is saying Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the one through whom all things came into being. So Paul is saying before Rome existed, before your little Christian lives in Colossae existed, Jesus was the one in the beginning, who was the Father's agent in creation. Now please don't think that Jesus existed, pre-existed eternally as a first century Jew. No, 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 no. <laughs> At a point in history... The second person of the Trinity took on flesh and became identified with Jesus the Messiah. Right? That's New Testament teaching. He wasn't a man in eternity past. He was the second person of Godhead. He took on flesh. He became Jesus the Messiah. And this one that we worship, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the man, is now to be identified as the second person of the Godhead through whom all things were created. Boom. <laughs> That's a king. That's a man to worship and to adore and to live for and to have central, right? Centrality of Jesus. All things were created through him in the beginning. Now, present tense. Tapanta, the totality, was created uh, through him. That means that everything now, everything that exists, all that you see, all that is around you, powers, dominions, the whole of the world that we see and we enjoy now is created through him. The presence is his also. All things past created in him, all things now created through him. The present exists because Jesus holds it together. The present exists because Jesus has purpose and intention for it. History, as I think Dave Fellingham has probably said here before, probably on a number of occasions, uh, is his story. Your history is his story. Your life now, your tiny little 70, 80, 90 years blip here in Fredericton is 
through him. It exists because he wills it. He is the one in the beginning through whom all things were made. The present exists in him and for him. And now, are you tracking me, by the way? You're going, geez, it's a bit more theological than yesterday. Um, Finally, to him. This final clause, this is is where the weight of the, the verse falls. It's all heading to this one. This, this is where it all kind of like, this is the load-bearing bits of the verse, if you like. To him, all things have been created. It's future tense. And what it means, you don't miss this. What, it, what Paul is saying here is that the entire, entirety, the tapanta, the totality, is going somewhere. It's all headed somewhere, and that somewhere is a divinely appointed conclusion. That somewhere is resurrection. That somewhere is new heavens and earth. When you look around in the world that we see, this beautiful lake, this wonderful Fredericton with all its beauty, I think, and uh, New Brunswick with all its majesty and the beautiful stuff, our, our lives, the whole thing is going somewhere. The meeting place, church, it's going somewhere. And that somewhere is not, well, we're going to be 500 people in a, in a few years. That somewhere is reigning and ruling together with King Jesus in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells and there's a people redeemed by the, ransomed by the blood of King Jesus from every nation, tribe and tongue. It's new heavens and earth. You are not destined for an eternity of floaty, floaty, disembodied bliss playing Matt Redman songs on a harp. <laughs> Some people might say that sounds more like hell. <laughs> Some, not me, just to be clear, all right? It's the disclaimer. The whole way to... You, you, you don't go to heaven when you die. In the end, it's not that the world blows up in some kind of cataclysmic event and we spend eternity floating around with like ghosts somehow. The Bible teaches in the end, actually, heaven comes to earth and joins and unites. And so the whole cosmos becomes as the most holy place in the temple where God's presence tangibly dwells under the reign of King Jesus. The whole, when, we, when we sing, <laughs> the earth is full of his glory, right now, technically, that is not quite true, in a sense. Because the prophets say the earth will be filled with the, will be filled with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. It's future. There's a coming time when this world will be transformed completely. And Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, as it says in this poem that we read, the firstborn from the dead, he is the first bit of this creation to be made into new creation. Jesus, the man, is the first part of creation to become new creation, and the rest will follow suit. And so in Romans 8, we find the climax point is this, that creation groans and waits, longing and waiting for the revelation of the sons of God because the whole cosmos is heading for a glorious transformation. This whole earth and the beauty of the earth and the cosmos is going to be changed and lifted and transformed and made new and made whole. And it won't be a return to Eden. It will be better than that because it will be resurrection. It's new creation. That's where we are going brothers and sisters that's where the creation is heading and so we think when we think in little tiny frames of mind like going to heaven or going to church it shrinks it and makes it tiny when we make salvation of the gospel only about how i get my personal conscience soured from some guilty stuff that i feel we shrink it down 
And we make it all about me. And God's intention is for the whole cosmos to be changed, transformed. And you are the first bits of it. And so when Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, that you, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, new creation. What he means is this, if you're joined to Christ, he's the firstborn from the dead, the first to be raised, the first to be changed. You taste the power of the resurrection by the Spirit in you, and you're being changed. It's a foretaste, a guarantee of your final future inheritance of resurrection. It's a new creation. You've become something new, and it's happening. Resurrection power is working in you now. Earlier on in Colossians, I love this verse. When Paul prays for the church in Colossae, and he prays this thing, um, how does he put it, uh, He prays that they will be strengthened with all might, according to God's glorious riches, for all endurance and patience with joy. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. I thought you were supposed to pray for God's power that we might see revival break out. God's power that there might be miracles. God's power that we might see incredible prophetic words. Well, yeah, that's great. But Paul likens the power of Jesus. We pray that the power of Jesus' resurrection would strengthen Christians to endure and bear with one another in relational terms, and to be patient through traumatic life circumstances. So the power of resurrection is what you need in order to keep going, to persevere, to keep pressing through. In actual fact, I think you need the resurrection power of Jesus more for that than you do for miracles, in a way. Because a miracle, well, yeah, great, it happens, boom. Well, that makes it sound so trivial, doesn't it? I don't mean it like that, you know. But to live faithfully... For the long haul, to not shake or flake, but to keep going through difficult circumstances, through heartache, through the times where it appears to be Jesus nil, divorce one, Jesus nil, sickness one, Jesus nil, backslidden kids one, whatever else, right? And you think, gosh, Jesus' resurrection power enables you to keep going. I'm going off piste again. I have to, yeah, well, yeah. It's a good off piste. <laughs> real life, real action. Yes. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's right. You didn't have to say it. No. <laughs> Look with me at Ephesians 1.10 for a moment. The mystery of his will, Paul says, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So, right, so when the fullness of time comes, he's not talking about the end of a space-time universe. He's not talking about the end of time as if we kind of drift into some kind of weird, blobby, gray, nebulous existence. It's to unite all things, to panta, the totality of, Things in heaven and things on earth in him, in Christ. The creation is heading for a glorious restoration and renewal under the headship and kingship of Jesus. That's where it's all going. Now listen, the issue, just as an aside, this is another off-piste, but it, it, it makes sense, I think. The point of living a holy life the point of, of putting sin to death in your life, that the point of looking to live obediently to Jesus is not simply that all that God wants is morality. It's not about just that. It is, that's not all that counts. Because God's not looking for just a bunch of people who keep their noses clean. 
He's not looking for a bunch of people who somehow are a bit more... You know, frankly, there are more moral people that I know who are not Christians. Right? Now, that's sad in a sense. Talking to a good friend of mine in Belfast, church planter, he's like, you know, there's some humanists who live just down the street, neighbors of mine, uh, and they do more good work for the immediate community than, than we do, and that's hard. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that is. That's the reality. But what God is looking for is a people who are living for new creation. And so later on in Colossians, actually, Paul talks about carrying on steadfast and movable, not shifting from the hope of heaven, which you heard. And the point is this, if you're going towards new creation, why would you continue to turn back towards old again? What, what, it's like dragging a corpse with you. When, when you. when you're kind of carrying sin around in your life, you're headed for new creation. You are headed for resurrection. And the Spirit is the guarantee of that. So why do you want to drag around a corpse of sin and junk <laughs> and like, dead stuff with you when you're alive Cut it away. Put it away, as we saw in the very first session. Because you are going, you're heading towards resurrection. You're heading for glory. You're headed for new creation. That's where you're going. So when you go back this way, you're you're basically saying, well, Jesus isn't really raised from the dead. Because, well, actually, I'm just going to carry on like that, as though I wasn't raised with Jesus. The reality is you are. Jesus is raised. I heard Joe yesterday, over just about heard him over Zachary's crying, (laughs) Reading from Romans 6, you were raised with him in, in order that you also may walk in newness of life. And it's not just morality for morality's sake. You live as new creation under the noses of the current world and its rulers and authorities and the, the patterns and the things that control and seem to control in order to rebuke and say, look, no, God's intent for this creation is bigger, better, brighter, more HD, technicolor, wonderful, glorious, 3D, whatever you want to call it. It's not your analog black and white fuzzy signal. This is what it's really like. And so the church is called to be a new humanity. Because Jesus is raised, the firstborn from the dead, he's the head of the church. The church is joined to this one who was raised from the dead. So not only is Jesus the one who is supreme and central and sovereign over this creation, he's also, by resurrection, supreme and central over all that is to come, future. And you belong to him. You're in him. And so you live in him as a foretaste, as a foreshadowing of a demonstration to the world of what God is going to do in the fullness of time. Boom. (laughs) That's how you live. And so it becomes much more than your personal morality, much more than your personal conscience. It's about being a new people who live under in submission to the authority of King Jesus. Think about this verse. Hebrews one three. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again. Don't think of that verse about upholding the universe as Jesus is not like some kind of cosmic Mr. World, like you know, a cosmic Arnie. <laughs> Jesus the barbarian. <laughs> upholding the universe. <laughs> On his shoulders like Atlas somehow. <laughs> what it means is, what, what the writer to Hebrews means and what the Greek phrase means, it's, it's about, it has momentum. It means that the word of Jesus, the the living, resurrected glory of Jesus, his word is what sustains creation and takes it to its appointed fruitful climax and conclusion. That's what it means. 
And so you see all the way through the scriptures, in the, all the way through the scriptures, the few that we've examined this morning, there's this sense of momentum, of creation going somewhere, and the church in Christ, the first fruits of new creation in Christ Jesus, that lives as a demonstration and a foretaste of what that is going to look like one day. And you know, that's a powerful provocation to the world, to see a people who are living a new kind of life. Are people who are living HD, technicolor, reality, right here and now, even in the midst of the fuzzy, mixed-up signals that we see around us. I haven't got it up there, actually, but Philippians 1, verse 6. Paul says this, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, consider the parallels in that with Genesis 1. Beginning, completion, God began a work. He completed the work. Paul is saying that new creation will come to fruition and that Jesus is taking the church there. You know, this church doesn't stand or fall on the basis of whether the worship band is cool or not. The future of the meeting place doesn't depend on whether Joe Crummy like, does any more sequels to the... Hidden Elder, is it? Hidden Elder? Undercover Elder, that's the one, yeah. Same difference. (laughs) It's about Jesus' blazing hot intention to complete the work that he began in his resurrection from the dead and present a people to the Father, pure, spotless, blameless, in new heavens and new earth. You're going somewhere. If you're going to be presented before the King, pure, blameless, spotless, Why waste any more time faffing around, getting dirty and messed up with sin and rebellion? Why? What's the point? You are going to be presented before someone, the king, spotless, radiant, glorious, beautiful. So put aside all the stuff and junk that clutters up your life and set your... I mean, just think of this. It it gripped me again. I think it's probably 1 Peter, actually, or 2 Peter, where... Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you, or in you maybe. Future hope. Future hope becomes the thing that is the driver and the motivator in our lives as Christians. Future hope. New heavens and earth. We're not a people destined for destruction. We're not a people destined for some drifty existence that is nebulous and you know, just floating around. We're destined for reigning and ruling with King Jesus as his bride, a beautiful bride, a new people. That's what you're heading for. That's where it's all going. Momentum. You're going somewhere, headed somewhere. Now, when we left England to come here, <laughs> I had to, we had to pack the suitcase. In fact, we had to pack two because of Zachary. And it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a game, isn't it, when you go on holiday? I, I find it a little bit stressful, actually, because it's, well, what, what do you pack? And I mean, we're coming to the Maritimes. It's like, man, you've got to pack for every eventuality. <laughs> I was like, gee, how do we get snowshoes in here? <laughs> <laughs> snowshoes and a pair of Speedos. That's kind of, <laughs> that's the extremes. You know. Some people wear snowshoes and Speedos at the same time, I believe. <laughs> you don't have to, Joe. You get to. <laughs> yeah that's right yeah mental pictures (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. And the whole, the whole thing of packing, every event, you, know, you pack stuff for every eventuality, what do I need? And some people kind of pack all this stuff in there, and you know, you're kind of getting your suitcase ready and everything. And you've you got to pack stuff and take stuff with you that's going to work where you're heading. Yeah? You got me? You've got to pack things in your case that make sense where you're heading to. If I go on holiday to Bermuda, the Caribbean, as you like to call it, in North America, the Caribbean, as we call it in the UK, there's no point packing a winter coat. It just does not belong where I'm going. It makes no sense, nada, nothing. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't compute. Likewise, if I come to Fredericton in February, there is little point in packing shorts or Speedos or whatever else. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't belong where you're going. And so the point is this. What are you jamming your suitcase of your life full of now? Does it belong where you're going? If you're going to new to resurrection and new heavens and earth and new creation, what you're packing and stuffing into your life, does it fit there? Does it make sense there? Is it incongruous with where you are going? Or do you need to root through your suitcase and chuck out a lot of stuff that doesn't actually fit where you're headed to? Because you can drag that case around with you all through your life and it weighs you down and holds you back. And you need to understand that there are things that you are doing now that will bear fruit and continue on into new heavens and earth. It doesn't mean that this stuff that you do here doesn't count. In other words, what does Paul mean when he talks about stuff that survives the fire in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Whatever a man, however a man builds, and I think he's probably talking about local eldership actually. So Kevin, Gary... Joe, steady. <laughs> How you build on the foundation of Jesus matters. If you build wood, hay, straw, the stuff that's going to burn. And he's not saying that the whole lot. I don't think it's talking about there's just going to be this cosmic fire. I think it means that there's things that are going to last when we head into new creation, and there's things that ain't going to last. So don't spend your time building stuff that's not going to last. Build with the stuff that is going to last, that goes on and bears fruit. I don't know how that happens. It's a mystery, Right? But I know that Jesus was raised a physical body. He ate fish. <laughs> he was touched. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't will-o'-the-wisp. He was raised a physical body. We will be raised physical bodies and have a physical resurrected experience. That's why resurrection and resuscitation are not the same. Lazarus was resuscitated. Jesus was resurrected. He became a whole new type of being. <laughs> That's what we're heading to. I'm glad because my body's kind of wrecked in some ways, and I'm like, you know, great, that's fantastic. I'll get a new leg. I'll get resurrection. That's where you're going. So, just a few challenges. A few challenges to us. <laughs> you're like, what? More? If Paul took this poem and stuffed it full of Jesus, or maybe wrote a poem full of Jesus, who knows? In any, in any case, if he took this kind of cultural form this creative thing, filled it full of Jesus to captivate the imagination of a bunch of newbie Christians, then I want to ask for you to think very carefully as a church about living imaginatively in the city. And I want to challenge you to look for the areas of life in Fredericton where it appears to be Jesus nil oppression one, or whatever else it might be, or Jesus nil, divorce one, or sick, whatever, whatever else. And I want you to think imaginatively about how you might live 
a different kind of story and a different kind of way right under the noses of the rebelling powers at the moment in order to call people into the new reality, right? You have to think carefully and you have to engage with areas of life, just like Gary does, I think, with school. And I'm just constantly amazed hearing the stories about what Gary does in his school. I'm like, man, sometimes I think, am I even a Christian? Gosh. Engage with the world. Engage with it. Think carefully. And what you're doing is, is, is transforming and living a different reality. Not because, it's not because Jesus doesn't own it, but because he, because he does. And the world needs to see that this thing, music, art, education, politics, family life, business, whatever else it might be, is actually all King Jesus's. And you get to do it in a different kind of way with a new creation perspective that says this is going somewhere beautiful. Why don't you come and join with this? And so as a church, be creative. Be a church that is imaginative. Don't just exist in a ghetto. God's not looking for people who have a Sunday-centric Christianity where, where Christianity is all about Sunday, where all the eggs are in the Sunday basket. And it's very easy to get to that, especially as an elder, right? It's very easy for everything to become about Sunday. We spend all our time and energies planning for Sunday, preparing for Sunday, thinking about Sunday. And God's about restoring and renewing the earth. So I'm not saying don't think and plan for Sunday. But I'm saying spend at least an equal amount of time thinking and planning and reimagining what Fredericton looks like under the rulership and kingship of Jesus. And you go and do that. Think about how... Jeremiah puts it, to exiles in Babylon. Jeremiah 29, we know this passage well, I'm sure, because people like Mike Driscoll and things have have kind of hammered it over the last few years. Jeremiah says, take a a plant, build houses, plant gardens, eat their produce, take husbands, wives, give yourselves to the prosperity of the city, because when you do, you yourselves will prosper. Now, what was he doing when he says plant gardens, live in, uh, eat the produce, all the rest of it? He's saying live faithfully to, actually, Genesis 1. Live faithfully to God's garden story, God's creation story. Live faithfully to the story that God has told about whose world this is and the way that this world works. Live faithfully to that right under the very noses of the people who have taken you off into captivity. Live faithfully to it when it looks as though it is Yahweh 0, Babylon 1, Live faithfully to that story and subvert it in order that people might see evidence of this being God's good world and be rebuked and called and convicted and drawn into it. That's what your job is. Sometimes it doesn't look as though Jesus is enthroned, right? Sometimes the newspapers seem to scream that Jesus is nowhere to be seen. But we know different. We understand whose world it is. We understand where this is going. And so we line up our lives in a whole bunch of different ways and we live it and we live imaginatively, faithfully to that story, new creation, the beginnings, creation, new creation, restoration. That's how you've got to live. So it becomes more than just about morality. It becomes about new creation. That's what you get to be and to do.